Coming up today, we are talking the book, What Movies Teach About Race, Exceptionalism, Erasure, and Entitlement. Stay tuned. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. From the library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey, hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for a special episode of Book Circle Online. I know that you don't recognize this familiar face unless you're a fan of BHL or AfterBuzz, but I am a featured host today. My name is Char Jocelle, and in studio, I have a very, very special guest. She is a mother, a scholar, an activist, a minister, a lawyer, a professor, and now, well, now a book author, because you've you've written some articles. Exactly. Dr. Rosalind Satchel. Give it up. Oh, How thank are you? you. It's a pleasure to be here, Char. Thank so, you so much for inviting me. Thank you, Dr. Satchel, for being here. Um, I'm a little nervous about this interview, though, because Dr. Satchel, you all heard everything that I just rattled off. It's like, is there anything this woman cannot do? I mean, you are the quintessential, based on your resume and your bio, you are the quintessential Renaissance woman. Well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. It makes a sister a little tired sometimes, but yeah, it's so, a pleasure. So you have a new book coming out yes. called What Movie? Movies teach about race, exceptionalism, erasure, and entitlement. Correct. And if you could uh, give us a taste of what the book encompasses, what would you say? This is a book for folks like me mm-hmm. who love movies, right? And when we watch these movies, there are certain things we go in, all of us know. But I was really interested in what the science would tell us if we actually studied them, right? Mm-hmm. So this movie teaches us that movies actually have certain ideological messages. Mm -hmm. That simply means that there's certain basic systems of meaning that are implicit in all of our favorite films. Those highest grossing films of all times have one very central message that is consistent. One of those is that white men Mm -hmm. can kill, Mm -hmm. love, destroy, and steal with impunity. But when people of color do the same thing, they are immediately annihilated. Now, this is something that's not really new, right? We all kind of know. Yeah. Yeah. And we go into movies knowing this. Mm -hmm. But when we enter into debates with our colleagues and our counterparts, they will often say, oh, no, you're reading too much into it. Oh, no, that's not possible. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, is that the science shows that it's true. Mm -hmm. I pulled out. 10 of the top grossing films of all time with the highest number of viewers globally. So these are these 10 black movies or just in general? No, these are box office, box office, blockbusters. Okay. Okay. These are the films that everyone sees. Quite Mm -hmm. honestly, most people love. Mm -hmm. So we're talking Jaws, E.T., um, Jurassic Park, Mm -hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Mm -hmm. Star Wars, A New Hope, that first one. Um, Then Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Phantom Menace, uh, Titanic, and Avatar. Okay. So these are the core films that pull in the largest viewership, largest audiences globally. I didn't want to study some cherry-picked group. Mm -hmm. I actually went to the industry rankings and said, who's watching the most, which films are the most number of people watching? Let's look at what they say. Mm -hmm. And I found that 10 of the 20 top grossing films of all time were made by only three 
movie directors, only three studios. So that was a compelling finding in and of itself. And this was actually as a part of they another... they keep it in-house. Right. And keep cy- cycling the same, just like how we get the same rhetoric in movies and all these remakes of the same story essentially being told over and over a different way. This is exactly what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So since you and I can sit down and have that conversation and we would know, mm-hmm. yes, there's the same story being told. We're just seeing different formula. people. It's a formula yeah. for success. And what I simply did was go and find out what were the elements of the formula. The elements of the formula are that we put a white male lead in um, in the film. Mm-hmm. We structure a very common narrative mm-hmm. where all the women are either damsels in distress or crazy and erratic. <laughs> they can sometimes be smart, but for the most part, these are very formulaic pro- portrayals. Mm-hmm. And the women are typically made into a sex object, Mm -hmm. completely objectified and made to be the love interest of the hero. They are there, in fact, to justify the hero as a heterosexual male who is a white male Mm -hmm. who is entitled to do whatever he wants in the world. Yeah. That's what I got from it. I, I w- Literally, I read a few pages because it's 175 page. I mean, it's a good read. <laughs> but, you know, in my flipping, I was like, okay, I get that Dr. Satchel. What I got from it is that you were trying to really challenge the way that we just basically what you just said, challenge mm-hmm. the way that we view things that we consider the norm yeah. and challenge how we really, I guess, digest and take in media on a larger scale. So what made you, because, because I know that you have done other articles like you've mm-hmm. published article but this is your first book correct correct okay so what made you go the movie route because i noticed that things have been sort of like a theme in your writing as mm-hmm. far as um challenging our thoughts but keeping it still pop culture mm-hmm. in certain aspects what made you go the talk specifically about movies i'm a human rights activist at my core mm-hmm. that's actually where i started i started as a child of human rights activists and kind of coming up in that vein. So it's been about 30 years of activism for me. I was running the National Center for Human Rights Education. We were working with um, the committee to eliminate uh, racial discrimination on the convention, the national international treaty to end racial discrimination. What we found very clearly that activists across the world were saying Mm -hmm. is that xenophobia in the media is a problem. Now, xenophobia is a big word for a very simple concept. Simple concept. Trump. (laughs) Not to get political, but... but... I mean, but in fact, it is this fear of the stranger. Mm -hmm. It is the fear of the other. And the way in which we see in movies that people are othered is through race, class, gender, sexual orientation, religion, ability, and pretty much all of the categories that the human rights documents aim to eliminate discrimination. So if xenophobia in the media is a problem, and if NGOs across the world are trying to redress it, then what they need is the science to substantiate their claims. And what I am doing in my research is actually trying to provide that necessary mm-hmm. basis. So they have a point of reference to pull from instead of it being just it's this not big conjecture. Unif- right. Exactly. Right. It, it's not something that I sat down one day and thought, oh, this movie 
is racist. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. I didn't. It wasn't a matter of um, of doing that. I brought in independent coders, mm-hmm. and we sat down with these films. We watched them repeatedly. We analyzed them. Oh, for, so you had a team. I had a team for research of, of researchers. Did. Of yeah. course. <laughs> I mean, but but this is the thing. This is what we don't know that the other folks do, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't re- realize that academicians and scholars are actually pulling together a whole team of researchers to analyze in on a variety of variables. For me, the variables I looked at were images, themes, words, and actions. And if, in fact, the images, themes, words, and actions all convey a a very consistent message, Mm -hmm. then that's what we're concerned about. Now, I'm not concerned about isolated films, right? Mm -hmm. We all watch certain films and we know that's just racist. That's just heterosexist. That's just homophobic. That's Mm -hmm. just sexist. No matter how we look at it, we can kind of identify those. What I'm concerned about and what I think we have to be concerned about socially and globally, especially as it concerns democracy and the threat to democracy, is simply what are these films saying in the aggregate? When Mm. we look at all of this corpus of films, Mm -hmm. and for me, it's these 10 films. Mm -hmm. So when we look at these 10 films that are highest grossing, made by three studios and three filmmakers, the top viewership, top grossing, getting most of the awards that are out there. We're basically saying this is the formula for success. This is what draws people into the movie theater. Mm -hmm. This is what people are willing to buy in terms of their movie content. And buy into. And buy into. So then what what are these movies teaching us? What are they saying for us? And why are we so drawn to them? What are they affirming for us as a society and as a world? And that's the stuff that is underlying all mm-hmm. of the hate. It's like dog whistle politics almost. Oh, big time. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And that's what I teach my students all the time is that you always have to look to see what are the coded and encoded phrases, themes, ideas, images that are present because they are setting up a system of values, mm-hmm. a system of meaning that really does completely and totally influence the way we think about Everything because you internalize it and then it lives in your subconscious and that's what you end up taking it's out into you, the world. What and you how you interact with people and psychologists have been saying this for years. Yeah. The literature is out there that people have a certain schema in mm-hmm. their mind and mm-hmm. those schema are embedded with stereotypes, pre preconceived notions, prejudgments about other people. All of our traditions, values, and norms are informed by those. And what we see consistently is when we have issues of racial bigotry, mm-hmm. racist um, institutionalized policies, and so forth, all of that is coming out of an ideology. It really it's is. not just an individual belief system. It's an encoded societal belief mm-hmm. system that we share through socially shared codes. Mm-hmm. And the research is out there that provides all of this that says that the schema in our heads are activated when we hear these socially shared codes, mm-hmm. the dog whistle politics that mm-hmm. you talked about. We hear it. It activates an automatic response before we even have time to realize what we're thinking. And so That's when I'm scary. working with my... It is. When it's you think about it, it's really scary. It's, it's, it's beyond scary because, in fact, it's almost like... Remember that old film um, that Denzel Washington remade, The Manchurian Candidate? Yes, yes. So, in the original film, you kind of see the I way that... that was the, a remake. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The original <laughs> film is it's an old black and white film. I don't even remember the filmmaker off the top of my head. But you get a chance to see how simply saying certain phrases mm-hmm. that are encoded into our minds and the way that we think really activates us an automatic response before. Before we have a chance to even process it. Now, if psychologists have been saying this and mm-hmm. sociologists have been studying this and recognizing how this acts in terms of society and governments and democracy, and then you have certain large multimedia conglomerates mm-hmm. who come to dominate an entire industry and an entire world through that industry, mm-hmm. and they are hiring these psychologists to help them to understand what are the socially shared codes that they can use to activate a certain I'm response. Shook. I'm literally you shook right be. now. You should be. You, we I all should be. That, because, that's, the, that's the whole point. We because should be. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but you know Ava DuVernay has mm-hmm. a new documentary called The 13th on Netflix. It's amazing, isn't it? If you all have not checked it out, I suggest that you check it out. I watched it last night just off a whim. You know, my roommates had told me about it. My sister in New York even called me yesterday mm-hmm. morning raving about this film and it basically speaks to it echoes what Dr. Satchel just sat here and said about how literally these narratives were created about particular groups of people and how they're perpetuated through everything from government to policy to laws and how we fall in line with it and don't really even notice it a lot of the times. Because that Birth of a Nation film yes. that they were talking about yes. with how they had the, the white original people, one the in original 1915. One. Not, Mr. Pro- not Nate Problematic Parker's version. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the original one where uh, the the white guys were in blackface and created this mm-hmm. this you know the white women were damsels in distress and it was this rape predator man. yeah like he was pre- out there animalistic mm-hmm. barbaric type uh, thing and people have carried that and all the COVID oh language and even the, and... the president at the time said yes. that it was you know truth and history and lightning written in lightning I mean the, this, and then the, the Reagan this... and Nixon eras and all like I literally and then Alec. The Alec part really got me uh, mm. about the corporations yes. being That's tied behind in the... writing the legislation that is being pumped through all of the different states. That really, that really got me. It's, but it's happening, and they've known it's been happening. It's been happening for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It's been forty to fifty years. And when those of us who have come out and critiqued these systems for having these types of behind the scenes, backdoor, you know, constructions mm-hmm. in play. They will say we're crazy, Mm -hmm. that we are conspiracy theorists and so forth. (laughs) When a loser. Right, exactly. (laughs) And often it just takes that spin to make people completely turn their backs Mm -hmm. on the truth. And the truth of the matter is, is that we are being manipulated Mm -hmm. and we need to understand whose ideology is manipulating Mm -hmm. us, whose belief system is manipulating ours. And in fact, who are we turning over our democracies to? You know, we go into other countries militaristically saying that we're advancing democracy and Mm -hmm. we're in the interest of the people. When, in fact, there is a larger construction, a larger power play being, you know, instituted. And that it has far more to do with economics and politics than it does have anything to do with the good of the people. Politics boils down to everything, whether you all realize it or not. Politics, it 
it goes beyond the government. It goes with how we even mm-hmm. navigate our day-to-day lives, even in the workplace. So in the intro of the book, one of my favorite parts was how you uh, referenced and quoted Chris Rock from the 2016. Damn right, uh, Hollywood is yes, racist. Yes, yes, because I thought he did such a uh-huh. fantastic job. Him and Ellen were two of my favorite recent hosts. Uh-huh. But um, I didn't even realize, because I remember that everybody was talking about when Sylvester Stallone won his award for Creed, how he did not acknowledge Michael Bay Jordan, like, at all. And uh, how the writers of Straight Outta Compton were nominated, but the cast and the film were not. So it's all different, like, literally, it's all sandwiched together. And, I mean, the campaign Oscar So White, how do you, as a member of Black Lives Matter LA, which Mm -hmm. we're going to get to, but how do you... Um, as this as this woman who is seemingly all-knowing. No, not I saw, that. No, I Googled you, and I saw an interview that you did, and uh, a girl called you woke, and you thought it was very comical. It was, her name was like, she's one of your students. But anyway, um, how do you di- begin to dissect something like that when you see that uh, it's becoming very common for people to be very vocal about calling the system out on its mess, especially mm-hmm. as it pertains to Hollywood and movies and things. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's really signifying a shift, a mm-hmm. real important shift. It's taking people to task. Exactly. Where we are not only having these conversations within our community, these are not just intra-community conversations anymore. They've always been, you know, there've always been the critical voices. There's always been a W.B. Du Bois. There's always mm-hmm. been a Mary McLeod Bethune. There were always the critiques that were happening within our community. We are now at a place of economic and political power such that we can and say, and, enti- and, and and let's just be honest about it. We have also been able to attain the level of education and the opportunities in education that we were not allowed, that mm-hmm. our ancestors were denied mm-hmm. as, as recently as 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So now we have voice and we have agency in a way that we have not had it before. And, and we are social able, media carries a lot of that weight, too. We are able to use the media that we have access to, mm-hmm. which often is social media. And that whole Oscar So White campaign really took off because of Twitter. It's- and in <laughs> fact, you know, we, we have with our new media that's available to us a new sense of democracy. Mm-hmm. And that's why our media giants are trying to gobble them up as well. And we should be very wary of that. Because what do you mean? Like, I mean, they're buying out YouTube, they're buying out Twitter, they're buying out that is true. And um, I've noticed little like uh, content creators and entrepreneurs through the interwebs who have become popular amongst us mm-hmm. are now, you know, now all of a sudden MTV wants to work with you and you never hear from them again. Like, exactly. they, they don't have that same, with the exception of uh, Cheska Lee, Francesca, who uh, hosts Decoded on MTV. Mm-hmm. You really don't see people who are these influencers, and this is not knocking MTV, I'm just using an an example, but when people align themselves from their grassroots and then all of a sudden sign the contract, sign their name on the dotted line, the content either dries up or becomes super lame, or you don't, they go from a weekly platform to where are they? And and that's largely (laughs) because we all have to feed our families, right? Yeah, of course. We all have to pay our bills. And what corporations recognize is that if I can pay this voice, if I can buy this perspective, this personality, Mm -hmm. I then can control it. And that is the problem, um, unfortunately, for many of us who are critical and take critical stances of not only government, but also corporations and corporate power. The folks who pay 
his or her salary Mm -hmm. are also going to be the ones who call her in and say, well, we don't like the way you said this. We don't like the way that you criticize this entity. This is one of our subsidiaries. This is one of our, our controlling interests in our boardroom. This is one of our shareholders. We don't want to do this to upset them. And then we have to go back. You know, as the scholars, as the activists, as the on-air talent, and try to backpedal, and that is an ongoing critique that we are, we are seeing is that basically when advertisers pull the chain and say we will pull our advertising mm-hmm. dollars if you continue to use this on-air talent, mm-hmm. if this on-air talent continues to say these things that are critical, mm-hmm. that is that's causing all kinds of problems. Not only in terms of on-air talent in the movie industry or Mm -hmm. entertainment industry, but we're seeing that in journalism. We're seeing that throughout the news industry as well because we're creating an industry of, honestly, models talking behind the desk rather than recognizing and appreciating, valuing that quality and caliber of journalist Mm -hmm. who was the watchdog For the public interest, in the public interest, in all of the stories, that was their initial, you know, construction. And Mm -hmm. so we're now seeing that that's being overlooked and we're moving toward a commentary, you know, model. so super biased. Exactly. I remember when I was an undergrad because I got my uh, bachelor's in journalism. Mm -hmm. And some of like the, the old videos and examples that my professor used to show me, even, you know, dating back as far as Barbara Walters, it seemed like things were, I mean, you could smell the bias in it, but it was a little bit more um, subtle mm-hmm. versus now, like you just said, like co- it was literally like commentary. Well, because there was the fairness doctrine mm-hmm. and the fairness doctrine required the outlets provide by excuse me, balanced presentation of information that it really sought to eliminate bias. It sought to set up a structure of objectivity that would protect the public interest mm-hmm. so that the media, the journalists, the press could actually act as a watchdog for the public. That was the model that we grew up on. Now, the model has completely changed. The fairness doctrine was overturned by the FCC in the 90s. Um, The Telecommunications Act came in in 96 and said that not only don't they have to provide a balanced perspective, you can buy and own as many media outlets Mm -hmm. as you want to in a network or in a, a particular market. And so now... There's no attempt to be balanced. There's no attempt to be objective. That all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, it's okay, because if you have a Fox News, you have an MSNBC. And so the competition is there rather than um, in terms of the content. But that also is is weighted in the favor of these multinational yeah, media conglomerates. With, with polls, for example. Again, not to get too political, but even when we talk uh, debate coverage, mm-hmm. Fox will say Trump won by 12%. You know, polls are saying Trump won this debate by 12%. But then, for example, MSNBC will say, well, Hillary won by 57%. Like So with little biases like that, that, that always gets... You guys need to pay attention and notice these things because we do. Now, I wanted to break down the (laughs) title of your book because I was really intrigued by why you chose chose exceptionalism, erasure, and entitlement. Uh So what do the three E's within the title mean? Because we know we've been covering what the book is. You Uh have some great chapter names, by the way. But uh, (laughs) we've been covering what 
the book encompasses. <clears throat> but when it comes to those three E's in particular, what do those mean to you? And why did you choose to put that colon there? And break it down for us like that. Well, in large part because I wanted for people to know what this study shows. So I didn't just pick these out of thin air. Quite honestly, these mm-hmm. came directly from the data. So when we did the analysis of images, words, themes, and actions in these films, what we found was is that there is a consistent construction of American exceptionalism in these films. American exceptionalism simply says that Americans are somehow or another above the morals, above the norm, above Above the um, wholesome, right? Exactly. Apple pie eating, hot dog <laughs> eating, like we are. Every day is Fourth of July, <laughs> right? And it is a it's a move of nationalism in mm-hmm. the favor of. Um, U.S. politics around the world. So when you look at a Raiders of the Lost Ark, for instance, in no planet would you find a person of color, a black man, let's say, Mm -hmm. who can go into every country, well, to many countries on every continent around the world, take their national treasures, Mm -hmm. play with their religious idols, Mm -hmm. um, use their women, use their workforce, and do it without any sort of reprimand from the government, that there is absolute impunity. We see that in Indiana Jones, Mm -hmm. and we see it consistently throughout that whole franchise of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because it goes back to that white savior narrative, that white savior storyline that's always... You, you know. did read the book, didn't you? I, did. I mean, you I did. really did. And it challenged. <laughs> I thought about one of my favorite movies, and I was telling Kendall this weeks ago, um, The Help. I was like, oh, until I skimmed through a few pages of your book, and I was like, it follows that whole, it you does. know. Because I was like, I loved Octavia. I loved Viola in The Help. Oh, my gosh, I love The Help. Absolutely. And then we had the whole, here we come with, uh, what's her name? Emma, whatever. Emma... What's her name? Emma Stone. Emma Stone, yes. Mm-hmm. With the whole, we still have this white say. Even when you, with little uh, subtleties, like even when you look back at the Cicely Tyson role mm-hmm. in the film, being like the old, like, yeah. where did she go? You know, type things. So. Absolutely. That there is this white messiah figure who saves mm-hmm. the day. And we saves... even see it in religion too, pastor. Absolutely. Or minister. Absolutely. And that is why, honestly, when this when this study started, it started, it started as a religion study. Mm. It started as an attempt to deal with the religious messages that are embedded and encoded into these films and what jumped out more prominently was the racial messages and so there is a chapter where I deal with race, religion gender, class, ability sexual orientation and so forth but the larger structure Mm -hmm. that we see this embedded in is race. And so it kind of, there's this outgrowth of Mm -hmm. the other ways in which we can look at it. But exceptionalism comes in there. The erasure is simply that in four out of five, four out of 10 of the films, (laughs) black folks don't exist. We have been completely erased with the exception in ET of one, you know, um, cop that kind of drifts in with like two words of, of dialogue mm-hmm. and he's the foil to set up the little boys as the superheroes and and, and we see this critique in TV a lot absolutely. people always talk about um, um, on The View I guess Whoopi Goldberg I think it was Star Trek the TV show correct me if I'm wrong in the comments but Whoopi <laughs> Goldberg was like the only black person yeah. there and so that opened a door for Leslie Jones like representation is so important I feel like people are really being vocal about that now absolutely. especially when you have intersectional identities um, and then people I've seen people uh talk about friends sex in the city was one of my favorite shows and i realized wait a minute i'm not saying what 
is supposed to be New York City, you know. Yes. So even Will and Grace, people like all of these good shows that I'm like, wow, and I like Charmed too, but I don't see any black people in Charmed. And but so, we have to think about why that is, and it's not just because not even extras though. You hardly see black extras in this stuff. But what happens when we start to see ourselves through a prescriptive lens Mm -hmm. that favors whiteness? What happens? You tell me, Dr. What happens is that we start internalizing the messages about white supremacy, white privilege, white entitlement. And that gets to the third point of entitlement. White Mm. folks in these films are entitled to do whatever they want with whomever they want, however they want, with impunity but when people of color in these films i'm not talking i'm not pulling it out of the air in these films do the same thing what happens to samuel jackson's character in jurassic park he gets killed off yeah we see an arm right his arm is left over after the dinosaur eats him um in jaws we don't see any people of color at all right i can't watch jaws (laughs) but uh i mean but but my point is we can look at at the decades right so we go to avatar we look at avatar we see the people of color in avatar what color are they blue they're blue with tails and ethnic markings all over them they're tribal everywhere absolutely and they're doing the frog all the whirling dervishes and all of that it's all set up so that we see ourselves through the white messiah figure of Jake who comes to the rescue of this entire nation, Mm -hmm. entire planet of people who clearly have heightened um, sense of self, nature, connection Mm -hmm. with it all. Even look at Titanic. Think about it. Titanic. This was set in the 20s. 1912. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's go with that. 1912. It's in the book. I specifically remember. It's 1912. It's in the book. Thank you, Shay. Or 1914. It's one of the two. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. (laughs) It's it's early 1900s. Early 1900s. We're seeing no people of color who are even working in the bottom of the ship. No people of color working as musicians. We have Leonardo DiCaprio's best friend who gets smashed by that thing. He was ethnic. What was he? Um, Irish? He was like Middle Eastern, wasn't he? Or am I lying? He he had some type of olive skin tone and the center part black hair. I think we should revisit that show <laughs> because, <laughs> because you know, we, we studied these films and we came up with the fact that Titanic is one of those where people of color just don't exist. We see The peop- way it ends, I don't mind, honestly. Well, I mean, <laughs> the point is, though, that there were black people on the ship. Yeah. You know, that there was a, a Haitian man and his family I never knew on that. the ship. And they were on the logs. And so there was a decision made yeah. not to cast. To keep it a lily white love story. Absolutely. And so we have to always ask why. And so when we're looking at issues of entitlement, we're looking at issues of erasure, we're looking at issues of exceptionalism, they're all racialized. And they're not racialized by us who are critiquing it. They are racialized by the casting directors, the directors, right. the producers and writers who but put it together. But don't you even find that even with today there's still pushback? Even with all the upheaval and, and social media calling people to the carpet about their mess there's still like I remember the controversial one of my mentors is Janet Mock and she is a Hawaiian native and they came out with the movie called Aloha again Emma Stone and Emma Stone Mm -hmm. was supposed to be some native Hawaiian and this is a white woman with freckles and red hair and it was very problematic so it's like but then but then think about what happens with movies like Mulan 
the the new film Mulan is coming out. And what Asian American Asian audiences globally came out and did as active viewers was that they put together their own campaign mm-hmm. to push back on the movie studios, to push back on the directors, the writers, the producers, and ensure that that narrative is not going to be co-opted and whitewashed to mm-hmm. be depicting a white. Now they would cross so the line, if we ha- but I wouldn't be surprised if if they tried to give us a white Mulan. But they would be crossing the line. Well, but they've already retracted. They've already taken steps really? back as a result of the grassroots movement. The Asian audiences put yeah. together and pushed back and said, "We are active viewers. We will not support you. Not only will we not support your film if you do this, but we will boycott it." And neither will this black girl, by the way. I love <laughs> Mulan, but I won't. Right. And so we have to look at the story of Mulan. Was actually a story about. A woman who saved her family, mm-hmm. not about a woman who fell in love with a man who saved her mm-hmm. family, but that's what the Disney, you know, depiction it, yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And so the folks are saying, no, we're not going to support this anymore. And that's what I'm suggesting that all of us do is come mm-hmm. out and say very clearly, unapologetically, directly, this is not the way that we will allow you to depict our people. This mm-hmm. is not the way that we will allow you to portray our stories. Instead, what we so will do is, is help you. Absolutely. I even That's the last that chapter is a call to action. I noticed mm-hmm. before references and about the author. <laughs> um, but I did notice even with last year, they had a, a movie based on, and this is even, um, this goes beyond nonfiction. This can even apply mm-hmm. to history. A lot of the times we see history whitewashed. Uh, and and the movie was about the Stonewall riots in mm-hmm. New York City. And the people who created the movie, we all know, in case you don't, watch Drunk History on Comedy Central, because Chris will narrate it. But, um, and Alexandra Gray acted in it, and so did Trace Lissette. Sorry, these are my friends, so I'm plugging. But uh, Marsha P. Johnson, who was a black trans woman, she kicked off the riot by throwing the shot glass infamously against mm-hmm. the mirror. But in the movie, there's some, like, white blonde guy who incites the riots and then all of the people of color who are LGBT are like supporting cast, you know, chilling on cars and stuff and people weren't having it. They ended up releasing the movie and it flopped horribly. Yes, it did. Because it's not, you know, people are just are not having it anymore. And that's exciting. I think that's exciting to see because in fact the producers and the directors and even the studios are starting to listen. And so we're starting to see more and more people of color being brought into those boardrooms where the decisions are made. And when I worked in a particular movie studio that will go nameless, um, in the the camera, in, in (laughs) what I found was, is that there were conversations that were largely, let's put our friends in. Let's put people in who we feel most comfortable with. Let's put this person as the director because we know mm-hmm. that he has a following. We know that his people will support him. We know that his work, his quality of his work. And as long as we do that, we set up a nepotistic system where no new people, Ooh. no new faces get brought well, in. We see, that's why everything's being remade and recycled right that's now. That's it. It's, all, it's the whole no fresh sequelization. Ideas. Absolutely. I'm looking like, who asked for a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie in 20 2016. Why are we keep recycling these ideas? Well, I mean, if you hear even George Lucas, whose films I critique in this in this book, 
George Lucas says very clearly that part of the reason he retired is because this whole sequelization genre that is now being pushed by movie studios really saps the entire Prequels industry exactly of any creativity mm-hmm. and any original thought, any artistry. Why do you think that is? Why because do you think that we love a, sequels and prequels and stuff? So I don't know much? that we love it as much as the corporations love it. Those okay. corporations love it because it is an incentive for investors and backers that you can say this movie is like Star Wars in the sense right. that it does this and therefore it might make the same money Star Wars brought in. It's all about return on investment. They, it's a completely different shift in the Hollywood of today than say 40, 50 years ago. It's not about artistry as much as it is about bottom line profits. And ultimately that's where we have to push back and mm-hmm. show our our power Mm -hmm. through our buying, (laughs) right? Our buying power. Ultimately, if we buy the movie content and Mm -hmm. and that simply means that we go and we sit in the theater, we buy the DVD. If we put our money into it, we are showing them that we support it. Even if we disagree when we walk out of the theater. Mm -hmm. So, what we have to think is really how do we harness our power and mm-hmm. how do we set up mechanisms so that people know which movies they should support and which ones they should not support in terms of their buying power. Mm-hmm. Because if it comes down to profit, it comes down to return on investment, then ultimately we as the consumer have a lot more power than we're using critically right now. I think that there's a level of comfortability that comes with all the sequels and prequels too. It's an, it's a level of comfortability and like nostalgia, maybe as a consumer, I'm, I'm going to go see sex in the city three. If they do a sex in the city three, because I like sex in the city, the movie. Mm-hmm. Now I want to ask you this because in your book, the, the, a lot of the themes of course are taking people to task about uh, representation for marginalized communities. Um, but what do you think about as a black woman, Um, About the colorism aspect, for example, as you were talking, I was thinking of the Nina Simone biopic where they chose to cast Zoe Saldana as Nina Simone instead of someone more fitting. Mm. I want to be PC. So more, uh, (laughs) more white, more white. I don't have to be PC. Um, (laughs) Instead of being someone with more Nina Simone type features, broader noses, Mm -hmm. darker skin, you know, kinkier hair. They chose Zoe Saldana. Like what? Mm -hmm. That's like them, you know, hmm, mm -hmm. well, but colorism is based in basic white supremacy. So it all leads back to what you're talking about. Absolutely. It does. Because ultimately the, the entire issues around colorism and and basically keener features, mm-hmm. the sharper, more angular features that are more associated with Europeans, all comes back to basic anthropology, mm-hmm. going back to slavery days of setting up a system where one people are made into animals and one people are made into the elites. Yes. And so the, it justifies, like you are justified in making a judgment that someone shouldn't be cast in a role or is too ugly to be cast in a mm-hmm. role simply because they are not as um, as as close, you know, we, as as, think about it. What do we call it? Fair, right? Yeah. Not as fair as others. Well, being dark, 
it's not unfair, mm -hmm. right? So, but we still buy into the use of that language. And it is all about how we restructure the way we think, how we understand the black aesthetic, mm -hmm. how we understand how we value what it is to be authentically a person of African or Asian or Latino or Hispanic mm -hmm. descent and what it is to value that and to not necessarily think that white ice is colder. You know, I mean, like that's, 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 that's embedded in our culture and it's you often... You want to sit in one of your classes, I wish you would. I, you know, <laughs> I mean, really. I, the cool thing is, is that when what I've learned is teaching this material really does in and of itself mm -hmm. create an audience because people want to take their power back. People are critical. People are having these conversations and see it. The only thing that happens is, is that we don't provide a venue mm -hmm. for this conversation mm -hmm. to happen. Now, surely I will get all kinds of hate and pushback for saying this and whatever. So it is. Everybody has. But ultimately what I am showing in the science, in the, the study, is that we are teaching audiences around the world to value one set of people above and beyond all others. We're teaching people yeah. to elevate. Do you think that that cycle can ever be broken? Yes, mm. I do. I do. And I do because, like I started out, I'm an activist at heart. Mm -hmm. I strongly believe wholeheartedly that human rights are possible in this world. Mm -hmm. I know it's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. That was my hesitation because I do recognize that we have turned over so much of our power to corporations and to corporate interests that simply saying these words um, creates a lot of hesitance. You know, I still have folks who are saying, you know, well, you know, you got to be careful. You got to find a better way to say mm -hmm. that. Don't offend anybody. And you're ripping the Band-Aid off. Respectability politics has its its weaknesses. And mm -hmm. we really have to dissect and critique that. And that is what the Black Lives Matter movement is pushing us toward. We have to understand Oscar So White had a very close direct relationship with Black Lives Matter. Yeah, it did. And so by pushing back and by refusing to be respectable, we're we're saying simply I'm tired of trying to prove that I am human just like you, mm -hmm. that I bleed just like you, that I hurt and cry just like you. Instead, since you don't want to listen to that because our ancestors have been over backwards to try to say that to you, what we will now say is that we will take our power back. Mm -hmm. And we will not ask permission in doing nope. so. And so we will speak our pretty. minds. It we, may not right. be pretty. We will, we will offer the critique and you can do with it what you will. At this point, we have to do what Audre Lorde simply said. And that was, you know, take, take, well, she actually said that we, we, we couldn't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. But I'd suggest that we think about that. Mm -hmm. And we do look at the ways in which we can use the tools that we have, whether those are the master's tools the or yeah, not. Yeah. Use the science that we have. Use the studies that we have. Use the research that, it, that we have to say, look at how this system is functioning. It's hurting people. It's dehumanizing people. It is not working in the interest of democracy. In fact, it is working to oppose democracy. It is challenging the very fiber 
of our societies. Everything we say we like believe the foundation, in. foundation, literally. Everything we say we believe in, we are undermining mm-hmm. if we are putting out this type of media content. And so we have to challenge it. We have to push back because I refuse to be set up to be us and them for the rest of our lives, mm-hmm. right? So if we are talking about Um, being one solid humanity who works together. One of the most exciting parts of being a part of the Black Lives Matter movement is working with our white allies and our Asian allies and our allies who are Latino and Hispanic. I'm glad you're touching on this because I was going to ask you about Because I'm telling you, it has been the most powerful, exciting, heartwarming Mm -hmm. work that has given me hope that we can make a difference, that we can change things because we come together about simple, basic issues that we are all human, Mm -hmm. that we all deserve respect Mm -hmm. and that our dignity must be upheld no matter what. And so if that requires that I disrupt your meeting, I'm sorry, but that life that I'm standing on behalf of is just as important as your meeting. And I will stand for that life that should not have been snuffed out by state sanctioned violence. That is where we are in terms of the politics of the day, because otherwise we will be brushed away. Mm -hmm. We have been brushed away Mm -hmm. by people who think that we are not as smart as they are. And we are Mm -hmm. people who say that they absolutely So why must we bite our tongues? Why can't we speak out and say it's not right? Why can't we, you know, uh, refuse to be pit against each other as Mm -hmm. us and them? I refuse to be the enemy of someone based on simply race, religion, class, gender, sexual orientation, or ability. I will not adopt that is my formula for success in my personal life. Mm -hmm. And therefore I won't support it in your corporate life as well. So we won't be us and them. We won't, (laughs) but that is what we see in the films. That's the most common message in the films is that it's always always constructing an us and them dynamic. And that is creating the type of hatred that we see in our current day politics. It's what we see day to day lives across the world. It's and it becomes so overwhelming. A lot of times, I just have to unplug from a lot of it. It really does. Because someone who like practically lives on social media, it is, it's a lot. Doctor Rosalind Satchel, I want to thank you so so much for joining me for this interview. It was very informative. I'm sure that you all learned a thing or two. I know I'm definitely walking away with this from a thing (laughs) or two. And Doctor Rosalind Satchel's book, "What Movies Teach About Race, Exceptionalism, and Erasure." And entitlement is available on Amazon.com on it November sixteenth. It's available today. Oh, it's available today. Yeah, you can pre-order today. Oh, you can pre-order. Um, okay, and it will be delivered to your home as soon as they are released. And they are scheduled to be released on November fifteenth. The date keeps creeping keeps earlier, creeping and, earlier, earlier and, and earlier. And so I'm thankful to my publisher for that. Yeah. Uh, they strongly believe in this work, and it's exciting to be in partnership with them. And I think the bo- the book will be out probably uh, a little bit I'm earlier. I'm excited for you. Because I feel like this is going to literally shake the table. And I'm definitely, I will support you. Thank you. And or pre-order my copy. Please do. On Thursday when I get paid. <laughs> okay. So, Dr. Satchel, thank you again for joining me. You can find Dr. Satchel on Twitter yes. at R. Satchel. And you can find me, your host, Char Jocel, everywhere on the interwebs at Char everywhere. Says So. And I will catch you all, I guess, tomorrow for the Basketball Wise Reunion After Show. Okay. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. From managing editor Jason Squamata 
Executive producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producer.